0: I want to share a brief introduction, and then I'll read our scripture today. Our preacher today is Reverend Dr. Hal Brady, Um, and many of you probably know his name and know who he is. Uh, Hal has been in the ministry for over 60 years. Uh, Before retiring in 2011, he pastored a a number of many churches um, across the state and nation. Uh, He finished, the last three, I think, were Glen Memorial in Atlanta, um, Dallas first in Dallas, Texas, and St. Luke in Columbus. Um, even in retirement, I'm amazed he continues his ministry through Hal Brady Ministries. You can find his influence on Facebook in eight different newspapers and weekly sermons in Atlanta. Curriculum that he writes for the South Georgia Conference or on Atlanta interfaith broadcast on Thursday nights at 8. How's there. Um, Hal's received two doctorates from Emory and LaGrange, and he and his wife Myron, they have three kids, eight grandkids, many family and friends. I, I've met a lot of you today who are here because of Hal. Um, and I'm grateful um, to know him. I just want to say every week, there's, there's at least three, most weeks, there's three retired Methodist pastors in our congregation, Hal and, and Gary Parrish and David Haygood. And it's not, it doesn't ever really make me nervous because I know they are so supportive and they know what it's like to be in ministry and to be in this role. And it's just a support to have Hal and Myron here so often. And so I'm grateful to Hal for sharing a word with us this morning. Our scripture comes to us from Galatians chapter 6. Hear these words. See what large letters I make when I'm writing in my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh that try to compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Even the circumcised do not themselves obey the law, but they want you to be circumcised so that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast of anything. Except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. But neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, but a new creation is everything. As for those who will follow this rule, peace be upon them and mercy and upon the Israel of God, from now on let no one make trouble for me, for I carry the marks of Jesus branded on my body. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: After a beautiful anthem, a little lady on the front row began to clap. And the minister didn't know whether to watch her get embarrassed or to affirm her. So he decided to affirm her. I think it would be very appropriate if we affirmed this choir again. That was magnificent. Thank you. Magnificent. This is the day the Lord has made, so let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's this day, every day, not good days and bad days. This day, every day, this is the day the Lord has made, so let us rejoice and be glad in it. I'm rejoicing for a number of reasons. First, because I have the opportunity of standing behind this sacred desk again, thanks to our pastor, Andrew. And let me just say this this church needs to keep Andrew and Connor and all of its staff as long as you possibly can. I'm also rejoicing because my family is here. Some of my family, they're sitting right over here, and it's always a joy to have them around. And then there's a, another lady that's been my youth director in a church I served years ago, Jane Bates. She's here. I'm delighted to have her here. And I'm simply delighted to be a part of this great church. My sister Ann Knight was in this church, and I think she was the wedding coordinator So she's loved this church and I also love it myself. So would you join me please in prayer. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. Acceptable in thy sight. Oh Lord, which art our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Several years back, a group of prominent people were given a list of a 100 famous events in history and asked to write them in terms of their importance for the significance of humankind. Top place was given to Columbus's discovery of America. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ died for 14th place, along with the discovery of x-rays. But for the believer, it's totally different. The believer is simply drawn to the mystery of the cross as the essential message of scripture. The Apostle Paul affirmed, But far be it from me to glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I unto the world. Now Paul becomes very personal in his angry letter to the Galatians. In vivid detail, he describes his conversion on the Damascus Road, his career as a missionary, his credentials as an apostle, the sacrifices he has made for Christ. He deliberately builds himself up in the eyes of his hearers for no other reason, to knock himself down. Paul wants these foolish Galatians to know just how little stock he places in any human component of Christianity. Faith lies not in anything we can do for God, but something God has done for us, without us, and even in spite of us. So does a believer have any cause to glory? Then let he or she look away from his or her own small service and tiny achievements to a cross that towers over the wrecks of time. Far be it from me to glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We glory in the cross of Christ because the cross reveals the visible love of the invisible loving God. Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, but God committed his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a rare thing in human experience for one person to give his or her life for another, even if the latter be a good person, though there have been a few who've had the courage to do it. Yet the proof of God's amazing love is this: that while we were yet sinners, powerless, helpless. Christ died for us. What is the greatest single thing you know about God? A cynical young college student asked a minister. The minister thought for a long time. And then he said, there are many great things one can say about God. Well, I believe the greatest, most perplexing, most marvelous, most wonderful thing I know about God is God's love. Apart from God's love, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, would be totally impossible to understand. Leslie Weatherhead was out on a ship. They were in the Mediterranean, and it was at night. And suddenly they were passing near to Stromboli, the famous volcano. And suddenly there was a burst of fire, and the volcano erupted, and the ocean was lit up for miles around. The darkness gave way to the light. Then in a little while, it all subsided, and it was dark again. What did it mean? It meant that for a few hours, there had been revealed something in the heart of that mountain that expressed its character. That's a tremendous illustration of the cross. As we see Jesus there, think of his reasons for being there, recognize his dying to save an indifferent humanity, see his spirit of redemptive forgiveness, we suddenly realize we're not looking at a cross at all. We're looking through a window, right into the very heart of the living God, and we see God's amazing, wonderful love for each of us. D.M. Bailey was a great scholar, and he wrote these words, and I'd like to share them with you. The most remarkable fact in the whole history of religious thought is this, that when the early church looked back and pondered on the dreadful thing that has happened, it made them think of the redeeming love of God. Two things need to be said about the redeeming love of God. One thing is, God's love always takes the initiative. It always goes into action first. And it always does this by the undeserving, by the undeserving. I have a friend who said that she absolutely hated cancer. She hated it when she first read about it. She hated it even more when she became a pastor and she would visit in the hospital and see her congregation as they suffered from it. But she said she hated it most of all one day when she was standing by the bedside of a saintly woman in Mexico, Missouri, who was gasping for her breath. It was her own mother. And she said, since that time, I've hated it, loathed it. Well, that's the way I feel about sin. Since I first read about it, I've hated it. And when I found out I was a sinner, I hated it even more. And when I see what it's doing to the world, I hate it even more. But I hate it most of all when I see an innocent man dying on a cross for your sins and mine. One of the greatest testimonies I've ever heard. I heard at a preacher's meeting not long ago. I'm not going to give you the whole testimony, just a little of it. This lady stood up and she said, I have five children. And she didn't want any one of them. She said, I hated every minute of my pregnancy. And she said, I felt so low in life and got so low in life and had so little love I tried to have this last one aborted." And she said, but when that little boy was born, he was perfect in every way. And she said, that little boy by far was the most affectionate child I had. That little child would say, I love you mommy. I love you mommy. No matter what we were doing, he would say, I love you mommy. And she said she finally came to realize that in the form of that little child's, I love you mommy, that was God saying to her that he still loved her. loved it, beloved, no matter what you've done, what you haven't done, what you're gonna do, what you're not gonna do. The fact is, God loves you anyway. Now, sometimes I do this, I'm not gonna do it here, but I'm just gonna show you something. Sometimes I ask the congregation to stand up and sing Jesus loves me, this I know. After they finish singing that, I ask them to sing it again, but this time put your arms around yourself, symbolically of the fact that God loves you, and then we sing Jesus loves me. And then I ask him to sing it one more time, and then shake hands with one other person, just to be sure we understand that God doesn't just love us, God loves other people as well. And then I ask people to sit down. We glory in the cross of Christ because the cross reveals the visible love of the invisible loving God. And then secondly, we glory in the cross of Christ because the cross reveals that we too have a victory. Oh yes, that cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to those of us who are being saved. We have a power over Evil. Some time ago, I served a church in another area and a man came to church for six months. He didn't miss the service. For six months he was there and he made me three absolutely beautiful wooden crosses. They were hand carved. I kept them on my desk and then I went to annual conference in Atlanta and I received a phone call. It was from his wife, Ruth. She said, how? He just raped his own granddaughter. I was absolutely stunned. Astounded. took me a little while to get myself together, but when I got myself together, I went by to see Ruth, then I went to the jail to see him, and I went back to my study. I was so disappointed in him, I didn't want to have anything to do with him. So I picked up the cross, and I was getting ready to bam it into the garbage can. And just as I got it over the garbage can, God spoke to me, not in an audible voice, but in a deep conviction of my heart. And He said, wasn't that the reason He died, for sinners? And so I put that cross very carefully back on my desk. Imagine how I felt the next day when I went by to see Him at the jail, He said, Last night, I confessed my sins, and God forgave me. While we were yet sinners, powerless, helpless, Christ died for us. One of my favorite pictures of God is that of a great garbage collector. When I first read that in somebody's book, I thought it was a sacrilege to call God a garbage collector. But now as I said, it's one of my favorites. Suppose you take the garbage in your house, and you don't know what to do with it, so you simply put it in the kitchen. So you stack it up there for a few days, just the garbage, you keep stacking it up. First thing you know, a stench begins to develop in your kitchen. So you say, well, I gotta get this out of the house. So you take it out in the backyard, and you let it sit out there for a few days, and first thing you know, that poison that was in your kitchen begins to move out into the community. So what do we do in the town or the city? We have to make an arrangement for that which we cannot dispose of ourselves. We have to make an arrangement for somebody to come by and pick up the garbage. Well, beloved, that's what God did at the cross. He made an arrangement through Jesus Christ to pick up the garbage of our lives, which is the sin and guilt of our lives. God fixed it up through that arrangement, the cross. One of the most exciting football games I ever saw. I was just a little little guy, but it was between Alabama and Rice. It was in the cotton bowl. Rice had the ball on their own 15-yard line. They had not been able to do anything. But all of a sudden, the ball was handed off to a halfback by the name of Dickie Magle. He was through the Alabama line and into the secondary and long gone for a touchdown when he got to the 50-yard line. There was not an Alabama man within 20 or 30 yards of him. And all of a sudden, a young man on the Alabama bench jumped up, ran out there, and smeared him. And then eased back over as if nobody saw him. Only 75,000 people saw him. And then millions watching by television saw him. Well, the referees, in an unusual but essential decision, gave the touchdown to Rice. But this boy continued to sit on the bench. His head was down. You know, this could ruin somebody's life doing that. Somebody looked at the jersey and saw that the boy's name, by his name was this, Tommy Lewis. And right beside him was the word captain. He was a captain. He was a good sport. He knew the rules. He was a great sport. But then it suddenly dawned on people that Tommy Lewis could no more explain what he had just done than I can explain some of the things I've done this past week, or you can explain some of the things you've done. This could ruin a person's life, but he continued to sit on that bench. I wondered how it would be to have 75,000 people see your sin and all those other television people watching your sin. In a little while, people saw the Alabama coach. He got up. He walked all the way down to the bench to so where Tommy Lewis was. He put his arm around him, and he said something like this. Nobody knows exactly what he said, but he must have said this. He must have said, Tommy, the game is not over. We still need you. You've got to get in there and help us. We still need you. And don't you know that brought a flood of forgiveness to him when he was restored to the team and to the fellowship? Well, that's the way God does us. God just simply reaches out brings us to him and says, I love you, period, anyway. So we have a victory over evil. And then we have a victory over suffering. In the final analysis, there's no answer to suffering. Let me ask you something. Will it comfort the bereaved parents to tell them that the death of their child is the result of the divine impartiality of God? Even if it is. Would it comfort? Or would it comfort to say, you know, suffering brings good things. Suffering makes us better. Well, if suffering is so good, why are we trying to get rid of it? If suffering is so wonderful, why are we trying to get rid of it? Or if you subscribe to the theory no gains without pains, is that... Suffering, right and good. No doubt you see where we've arrived. We've arrived at that point where we don't need an explanation of the suffering. We need a victory. We don't need to elaborate a theory. We need a power. And that's the reason God gave us Christ at the cross. Now my faith is the faith of an empty cross. But sometimes when I stand in a Catholic hospital and see a crucifix on the wall, I get the feeling that it belongs there. Why? Because somehow in the suffering of the cross, we meet God where God met us in the midst of pain and tears. So we have a victory over suffering. And then we have a victory over death. Jesus said, because I live, you shall live also. Eugene O'Neill wrote a book called Lazarus Last. Then his story, this is the story of Lazarus the brother of Miriam Arthur. You remember, he was brought up at Bethany. He left Bethany, went down to Athens, Greece, and while he was there, he went into a square and he confronted Gaius Caligula. He was the crazy one that Tiberius Caesar had picked to be his successor. He was standing there and they were all standing there and a spy came up and said, they hate you, Caligula. He said, I don't care if they hate me. He said, I don't let them hate me. He said, I like to watch people die. Let's keep death dangling before their eyes. And then he looks at Lazarus, and he's dressed in something from another world. He's got a smile on his face. and says, by the way, they tell me that you are telling people to laugh at death. And he said, I'll tell you this. You keep on telling them that, and you'll be the next person to die. Lazarus looked at him and continued to smile, and he said, death is dead, Caligula. Death is dead. It was not only Jesus who died at the cross, it was death that died at the cross. So Paul says, O grace, where is thy victory? O power, where is thy power? Thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so we have a victory over evil, over suffering, and over death. One other thing, we glory in the cross of Christ because the cross reveals a stewardship for which we are responsible. For the most part of this sermon, we've been carrying the cross for Jesus. Now Jesus says to us, Hey, I want you to carry the cross for me. If anyone would come after me, let he see and myself, take up the cross and follow me. There was a well-known author. This author said that he and his wife went to watch the Christmas pageant that his four-year-old son was in and he said it was just as bad as he thought it was gonna be he said when they got there the teacher came out on the stage and she said the four-year-old connecting class is going to present the Christmas pageant. and she said she just got off the stage and the janitor just got the straw on the stage before the curtain went up and as they were sitting there suddenly they saw from the corridor Three virgin Mary's. They came out. They came and stationed themselves around the crib, and they began to wave at their relatives. These three virgins, it had to be three virgins because they had collected three virgin costumes through the years. So there were three virgins. They were followed by two Josephs. These two Josephs came out. They stationed themselves near these these virgin Mary's, and they began to pick at their noses. (laughs) Then the next thing that happened was 20 angels. They came out, they had on beautiful white gowns with big old gauze wings. They came and placed themselves around the crib in perfect symmetry. Then there came these 20 shepherd boys. They were dressed in burlap sacks and they were carrying an assortment of things that were supposed to be crooks. Then, an unfortunate discovery came to light. In order to be sure these children had developed this perfect symmetry, the teacher had drawn a chalk circle on the floor for the angels to stand on and a cross for the boy, the shepherds, to stand on. And everything had gone fine when they practiced because they had on their regular clothes. Well, this night, the angels came out and they had on white gowns with big God's wings and they were standing not only on their circles but on the shepherds crosses as well. And then the shepherds started looking for their places. Angels were treated as they have never been treated before and these little boys became frustrated. They were going around the stage knocking each other down and around and finally this little boy became angry. He was frustrated And he spied the teacher behind the curtain. And I'm going to tell you exactly what he said. He said, because of these damn angels, I can't find the cross. (laughs) Isn't that the way it is sometimes? Because of the angels, sometimes we can't find the cross. At that point, we're not glorying in the cross. We are hiding the cross. Now, beloved, I'm going to give you just before I bring this to a conclusion. I'm going to give you five laws of stewardship that every Christian ought to know. I'm going to take this dollar bill. I'm going to put it in the hands of a stingy giver. You know it takes time, tithes, talent, prayer to be the kind of steward God wants us to be. So now the five laws of stewardship, this is in the hands of a stingy giver. First of all, God is the owner of all things by right of creation and regeneration. Everything that is, is a gift of God. It may have taken a process for it to get here, but it's all a gift of God. I'm talking about our lives, our homes, our families, our church. Everything a gift from God. And then when we got corrupt, God nailed Jesus to the cross. So by right of creation and regeneration, God is the owner of all things. If God is the owner of all things by right of creation and regeneration, then I am a steward. What is a steward? A steward is one who looks after something that belongs to somebody else. It may be my wife. It may be my children. It may be the church. It could be anything. If... God is the owner of all things by right of creation and regeneration. I am a steward and I am responsible. What is responsibility? Responsibility is the key to stewardship. I am responsible. What am I responsible for? Choosing, witnessing, teaching, affirming, loving, giving, all of those things. If I am faithful, I will be rewarded. What is my reward? It's more work. If you ask somebody to do a good job and they do a good job, they're going to be rewarded with more work. You're going to ask them to do something else. If unfaithful, I will be punished. What are my punishments? My failures. If I fail to be the steward God wants me to be, then the work of Union Fresh United Methodist Church is going to slow down, or it might even come to a halt altogether. But I want you to notice something. I'm taking this dollar out. And I'm going to put it in, this, in the plate where it belongs. But I want you to notice something, beloved. You see that hand right there? That hand is open. It's open like God's hand. Perhaps that's the only hand God has. Your hand and mine. Now I'll end this with a true story. A group of people in a certain church crowded a theater when it was gonna show the movie The Life of Christ. They all crowded in, they were packed, they got very silent and still when Jesus picked up that cross and he started moving toward all God. Everybody was quiet, one man particularly, was quiet. He knew this was the greatest event that had ever happened in the world and he was in deep concentration when all of a sudden a lady in front of him turned to another lady and said, let's go. This is where we came in. The man couldn't understand it. He just could not understand how anybody could be so careless, so callous, at the greatest moment in human history to turn and say, let's go. This is the place where we came in. But then he said, you know, I got to thinking about it. And she was absolutely right. This is the place where we all come in. The cross of Christ. It is indeed our glory. Let us pray. Our oh God, in the quietness of our own hearts, we know that you're dealing with us and we're grateful. We know, our oh God, that cross is something that you brought about because you loved us. We know it hurt you to do so, but you did it anyway. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this church. And thank you for all these people. Keep them, each one and every one, close to you. Meet them all at the point of their need. We'll give you the praise and the glory. It's in your name. Amen.
0: Hal, you've affirmed all of us. I just want to affirm you. Will you uh, thank Hal with with me today for blessing us? Hal, it's a privilege to sit at your feet today. Thank you.